Welcome back to, I believe this is our fourth Tadja class. We are up to chapter three of the Tadja. It's been a little while, full week, a busy week. We have entered into a special time. We've entered into Hanukkah and we'll make some connections to what we're learning with Hanukkah as well. Thank you all for joining us. I'll start as I usually do with a brief uh, recap of where we've come from and where we're going. In the title page of the Tanya, the Altareva quotes the words of Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, who says that this matter is not up in the heavens, that you ask who could climb the heavens to reach it, nor is it over the oceans. Rather, it is very dear to you in your mouth and in your heart that you can do it. So Moshe, Moses, Alvina told us that that Judaism is something that's accessible. It's something that we could relate to in our minds and hearts. The Alter Rebbe, the Rebbe of the Tanya, asks in the title page, or he says his mission is to explain, hey, how is it yet to us? But in a long, short way. And we explain what does a long, short way mean? It means that there aren't any quick fixes. If we want to develop a meaningful, wholesome relationship with Hashem, that's not going to happen with any gimmicks, with any tricks. It's a journey. And that's why he calls it the Derech Arucha Uktsara, a long, short way. Sometime I'll share with you, time is limited now, but there's a story in the Talmud of Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha, I'll share it briefly, where uh, he was trying to go to Jerusalem. Yeah, this is a few thousand years back. And uh, he saw a child there. He asked, how do I get to Jerusalem? And the child says, do you want the short but long way or the, or the long, short way? And he said, I'll take the short, long way. And uh, it was straight up the hill. And then he couldn't get in. There were bushes there. So he came back to the child. He said, what did you do to me? He said, I told you it's a short but long way. Okay, give me the long but short way. He said, okay, you got to go all the way around and around. And eventually when he got there, he was able to go straight in. And, and that's terminology that the Tanya uses in the title page. Derech Arucha Oktsara, long short way, says that this isn't about quick fixes. It's about a journey. But through this journey, we're able to really feel like we're able to get in with the help of Hashem. I was. Uh, a 10-year-old hiker and we were going into Drakensburg and there's a particular section of the path called the crocodile path. I don't know if any of you know it. And you look at the mountain, you're getting close to the top and uh, you literally see uh, edged into the grass how the path goes all the way to the right and all the way to the left. It's like you're walking, up, walking one way then you walk the other way but each time it goes a little bit higher. And then at the bottom of the crocodile roots, there was a path that goes straight up. And in front of the path, there was a sign that said, uh, no, uh, no, no through fair uh, trespasses will be prosecuted. And you just looked at this and it was like ridiculous. You, know, you could just climb straight up and a few minutes will be on top. Why do I need to uh, make myself the sugar? And uh, obviously, uh, my father taught me that we don't take these shortcuts. And we took the long route. And when we got to the top of the mountain, uh, it joined up with the road. There's a little section of the amphitheater. There's a little section where you walk along the road. And as we were walking along the road, we saw that there was a fence with barbed wire at the top of this short path. So had we taken the quick path, we actually wouldn't have been able to get in. So it was beautiful for me to see a personal experience of exactly what this message of the Tanya is right on the title page. So I'm just going back to what we've learned to just highlighting or touching on a few points to see where we up to right now. So it's a long, short way. Today, we're gonna to learn about another meaning of the long, short way or some added insights into the long, short way. You see, we learned about the Balsemton. 
the Baal Shem Tov spoke about how don't get too philosophical and sophisticated, rather get in touch with the Odeshama. We described how the, the Baal Shem Tov originally didn't reveal himself. He walked around as a, a pauper so he could mingle with the ignorance and uh, just with a simple word was able to raise their spirits. And based on that, most of his students taught his teachings with an approach where don't get too philosophical, don't get too sophisticated, rather just get in touch with your emotions. Just feel that love, feel that joy, and, and don't convince yourself that you, you know so much. Not so Tanya. So the Altarebbe was one of many students of the Baal Shem Tov. The author of the Tanya was one of a number of students of the uh, Baal Shem Tov. And each of his students had a different approach. So we're speaking now about Hasidism or Hasidim. So the founder of Hasidus was the Baal Shem Tov, which we spoke a lot about. And then we have different Hasidic sects, which often people are intrigued about. Why, you know, some people wear their hats like this and some people wear their hats like that. And, uh, and long payers and short payers and tribals and then all different types of attire. People are often intrigued. What are these different Hasidic sects? And the origins of them, they don't all go that far back, but many of them do, are different students of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov told each of his students to go to a different town and to teach the Baal Shem Tov's teachings. And each of the students taught them <laughs> these teachings with their own style. And that's how you have today, the Babich of Sidim, or Chabad, comes from the town of Babich, not originally, but it's been many, uh, it's been over a hundred years there. And then you have all different types of Chassidim, Gerach Sidim, Brest of Chassidim. Each of these Chassidim came from a different town in Russia, with their students of the Baal Shem Tov imparting to them the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov. These different Hasidim are generally referred to as Chagas Hasidim. Chagas stands for Chesed, Gvura, Tiferet. Kindness, strictness, and splendor. It's feeling. The general approach of Hasidus is about serving Hashem with feeling. Chabad was different. The Alter Rebbe was referred to as a Litvak. He was from the Lithuania area. If you look on the map today, it looks pretty far from Lithuania to the east of Lithuania, northern uh, Ukraine. But back then, the whole top section, if you're familiar with the map, was all uh, referred to as Lithuania. And he was referred to as the Litva. And the Altarebbe took a more uh, Gemara-style approach. And he said, no, in order to be able to have these feelings, you actually need to apply your mind and study. You can't just jump, you can jump into a feeling, but if you jump in, you can equally jump out. And this really has an important message for um, many of us. People often joke about South African jury. I doubt it's unique to South Africa. Um, say, I want to be inspired, inspire me. Inspiration, which is just a wild thought that really gets me excited, is more like chagas. It's, it's feeling. I'm excited. I'm inspired. But now I'm inspired in. And tomorrow I'm. I'm uninspired it changes from day to day as opposed to through applying our minds and studying we're able to develop feelings that last a lifetime and this is the long short way that he speaks about the title page of the tanya he's saying that uh, feelings if they're just going to be short then you can take the short way but ultimately it's not going to get you there but if you take the long route then you'll get there so in other words, what I'm saying in simple terms, which is a the theme of the third chapter of the Tanya, which we're about to look at, is that we need to apply our minds to Hashem. 
We need to apply our minds to understand what Hashem means to us and his significance. And only then will we have a genuine feeling for him. Other feelings will come and go, but they're not going to be uh, um, as long-lasting. So this is the general summary of chapter three. I'm, I'm not going in, in exact order, but um, I just was speaking about the title page and the long, short way means that we've got to study. We can't just uh, get any quick tricks. Then what did we learn after the title page? So we said, we're going to get the long, short way. And then in chapter one, we learned at the end of chapter one about two souls. We said, we don't just have a good and evil inclination. Rather, there are two drives within us. There's one drive, which is the animal drive, which is to look after ourselves. A word I didn't mention in the Hasidic vocabulary is clipper. Clipper in Hebrew means a shell. And uh, the Tanya doesn't refer to, the Tanya refers to the evil as a shell. It masks Hashem. It hides Hashem. Everything comes from God. As opposed to other religions, we don't believe there's any power in this world other than God. God is the cause and force of everything. But Hashem creates energies that hide him. And that's referred to as the clipper. That's the other side or the sitra aqua. This is These are Kabbalistic terms which refer to the other side. So that's the one soul inside of us. We have the animal soul that naturally hides Hashem until we work on it. And then we have, in chapter 2, the godly soul. And we said, The godly soul is actually a part of Hashem in us. Now, Hashem doesn't have parts, right? If he had parts, then he wouldn't be God. Because if he has parts, then he's finite. If he's finite, he's not God. To be God, you've got to be infinite. The Rabbim says in the introduction to Foundations of the Torah, he says that if the, there has to only be one God, as opposed to many other theologists that believed in many, because he said if there was more than one, there'd be none. Because the second is more than one, it means that the second one starts where the first one ends. And that means if the first one ends, then it means that he's not really... Uh, God, because God by definition needs to be uh, not affected or controlled by anything else. So God is infinite. So what does it mean that there's a part of Hashem inside of us? So the analogy that I saw is if you were to have an apple and you were to cut the apple into parts, every part of that apple has in it the nutrition of the apple. So it's not so much about did I have the left half of the apple or the right part of the right half of the apple. It's that in that little piece of apple, I'm tasting the apple. So similarly, Hashem rarely doesn't have parts. It's indivisible. When we say that there's a part of Hashem inside of us, it means that as God is up there, the grand, awesome God that we speak about in our prayers, that too exists within us in some small way, but it's there. So part doesn't mean God, but Hashem has parts, but it means that, that there's godly energy that exists inside of us. And this is what really makes us special, this godly soul. The question is how we can actually tap into it. And that's where we come to chapter three. So just before we come to chapter three, to wrap up chapter two, chapter one introduces two souls. So now chapters two, three, four, and five will speak about the good soul, the godly soul. And chapter six, seven, and eight will speak about the animal soul. Chapter two, three, four, and five will speak about good, the Hasidic definition of good. And chapters six, seven, and eight will speak about the Hasidic definition of bad. So now we're speaking about the godly soul. We're speaking about good. And chapter two says that no matter what we do, there's always something special that exists inside of us. And that we can never take away from us. And somebody asked me last week, um, sometimes it could be where a person does something so bad that their soul, the Rambam says that their soul literally just gets cut off and, uh, and that's it. It's over with. And uh, 
a very important principle to, to be aware of is that sometimes you look at different Torah texts and they look like they're a contradiction. But when you look a little deeper, you'll see that they're actually speaking in different contexts, on different levels. The Rabbah was, wrote a book of halacha, of Jewish law. And he's talking from a legal perspective as far as reward and punishment and uh, performance. And he says there could be a point where a person's conscious soul, eventually he, he's completely destroyed it. But he's not arguing with the Tanya. The Rabbah actually learned Kabbalah as well. It's proofs for that. It's a, for a, a separate discussion. But the Tanya is saying that in the subconscious, the soul always remains. So yes, on a conscious level, a person could reach a point where they feel like they have no connection to the Neshama, but subconsciously in the essence of every Jew exists always a part of Hashem. And, and if we remember that, then that will empower ourselves to rise to the occasion and do what's right. And it will empower us in how we look at others. We look at others that no matter what they've done, which is bad, not yet to justify something that's bad or that I've done, but no matter what they've done, still in their subconscious being, in their essence, they have a neshama, they have a godly part. But that brings us to a question. If it's in our subconscious being, then what's it worth? If it's something that no matter what a person does is always still there, then it's not there. Because you say that even if a person rejects it, he still has it. But if he's rejected it, he doesn't have it. So what does that mean? The potential. We have the potential to realize that godly soul. Uh -huh. so, but as long as it's in a state of potential, then how beneficial is it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, any of the parent of young children will know that when you have a meeting with a, with a teacher, the teacher says, you know, your child has tremendous potential. <laughs> then you can say, thank you very much for your kind wording. I, I get it. <laughs> so uh, it may be true, but we don't want things to just stay in a state of potential. We want to actually realize it. Here is chapter three. Chapter three is one of the shortest chapters in the entire Tanya, which is why I thought that maybe we'll actually be able to take a look at it inside. But we won't get there yet. So I'm going to keep sharing meanwhile, and hopefully we'll get there because there's so much to share. Uh, but, but chapter three tells us how we can get in touch with Al-Nashad, how we could bring it from a state of potential to a state of, uh, of, of performance, of, of actuality. And, and before we go there, one final introduction. Today in Israel, and I'm just using one example, there are uh, obviously many examples of this. You have a phenomena where soldiers, after going to the army, they've, they've rarely given, dedicated themselves while people in the most unbelievable way. It's still exhausting. And afterwards they travel, which is wonderful. They go to Thailand and to, uh, and to there's, there's a whole route of, of different countries that they visit. South Africa is not so high on, on the Israeli tourist backpack, uh, backpack uh, uh, route. I was once in New Zealand. No, actually a different time, I was in Australia. And I was in a place called Byron Bay. And uh, it didn't look like there was much happening there at all. But we, we, there was a Chabad center where they would just send um, uh, satellites, just boys, to run for programs. And it didn't look like anything was happening. And then suddenly we had 30 people Friday night. Me and my friend were hosting 30 people. <laughs> we didn't know anything about the kitchen. We were hosting 30 people because, you know, this guy told his friend and his friend. And suddenly there were 30 people in the room that Friday night. But uh, 
quite a you know, special experience. What did you so, serve? <laughs> oh no, are you asking? Have I told you this before? Okay, so we couldn't figure out how to turn on the oven. <laughs> no, really, for a long time, me and my friend, we couldn't. We tried and it obviously was broken. So thank God there was a braai outside, a barbecue. <laughs> Anyhow, there was a braai, there was a barbecue outside. So we thought we'll, uh, we'll just grill up the chicken. It's a lot of chicken for 30 people. Um, now, I'm the South African. I know more about braai than my friend who is from New York. And uh, it was getting close to Shabbos. And he put the braai on a high flame. And he said, like, let's just get this going. I said, no, you can't do chicken like that. He's like, no, I'm sure it will be fine. Anyhow, he won that argument. And within, I don't know, 20 minutes, all the chicken was done until it was all served that night. And uh, some some kind mother walked around to every person and whispered in their ear, don't touch the chicken. So, poisoning. <laughs> so that was the story of our elaborate meal. But there were still some great salads and other foods. So hopefully people didn't go home hungry. But this is the total sidetrack that's important to keep engaged. So Israeli backpackers, very often, Oh, no, so the, the, yeah, later the lady, the, the Chabad emissary came, they an hour away, the oven wasn't broken. <laughs> I don't know why you asked that. Um, <laughs> um, uh, back to the backpackers. So these special, beautiful souls, these uh, uh, soldiers or Israeli backpackers often feel that they're not just looking to get out, but they're also looking to find spirituality. And this is something that is uh, embedded in, the, in every Jew. Every Jew constantly feels that they want to get in touch with something spiritual, with something special, with something that's out of this world. They don't want to just be another human being that's experiencing another human condition. They feel there's a drive which is coming from their godly soul that feels that there's something non-worldly, something otherworldly, something godly, something really special and I need to find this. And unfortunately, very often, when they don't have the guidance, they, they end up even going to other religions, whether it's uh, on mountains or the Himalayas or meditation, or where they suddenly, they feel they, there must be something really spiritual, something really meaningful, something really godly, and they, and they don't know that it's back in their back pocket. They don't know that it's really here back in Judaism. And obviously, we all can share that with, I'm just giving one example, but so many Jews in so many environments, it's not just Israeli backpacker. But the point that I'm making is that no matter how religious or secular a Jew may be, because a Jew has a neshama, not only do they have the potential, but they will have a yearning. They'll have a yearning to experience something godly and something spiritual. And how do we experience that? How do we realize that? So the answer is here in little chapter three. Now, after, why did you need these great words of introduction? Because it's easier said than done. We're going to see when we read it inside that this is the long short way. This is the Chabad approach. So, by the way, if anybody ever wondered what Chabad means, Chabad stands for Chafma Binadas. There are three steps in understanding. And that's what the Chabad Hasidus is about. Yes, Hasidic philosophy following the Baal Shem Tov, but it needs to follow an intellectual process. And only when we apply our minds to this intellectual process are we actually able to experience this neshama, this, this awesomeness. So let's take a look at chapter three on page 66. And he starts. Now, each, I'm just going to read the bold, and then I'll, in my own words, will fill in the commentary. 
Now, each of these three distinctions and grades, Nefesh, Ruach, Shava, consists of 10 faculties. Wow, that could have already thrown you off. So there are different types of Nishabas. Some Nishabas are Nefesh souls, different types of souls. Some souls are Nefesh soul. A Nefesh soul is a type of soul that's more action-based. You have different personalities. Some people are more action-like people. That's a Nefesh type soul. Then you have some people that are Ruach type souls. Some people are more emotional personalities and it comes from their soul. Some people are more the Shama type souls. The Shama is more intellectual personalities. Different people have different souls and different people function in different ways. And he says, regardless of what type of soul you have, these souls, every one of our souls, my soul consists of 10 faculties. What's a faculty? It has 10 uh, energies, 10 parts to it, 10 uh, powers to it. Why does my Nishama have 10 parts to it? Corresponding to the 10 supernal spirits whence they descend. Okay, so here's a little bit of Kabbalah. As I said, we're not supposed to just open up a book of Kabbalah because you won't know what it means. I gave an analogy for that a few classes back. But the Tanya shares it in ways that we can understand. Man was created in the image of God. Does God have an image? So what does it mean God was, man was created in the image of God? That we resemble God's conduct. Just like Hashem is kind, we should be kind. The Rabbim says it. Kabbalah says more than that. Not only in action. Kabbalah says that our soul is an image of God's ten sefirot. So here's our quick Kabbalah one-on-one. God really is completely infinite. He doesn't have any body. He doesn't have any image. If somebody thinks that Hashem has any form, then that actually is a form of heresy. Because as we said, that he's limited and if he's limited, he's not God. So what does it mean, God's image? So Kabbalah says that before God created the world, Hashem took himself and he invested himself in 10 sefirot. I don't know if you've ever heard about the sefirot. Sefirot are 10 energies that God invested himself in, supernal garments, with which he created the world. So does God have an image? Not inherently, but he actually does put himself into one. God invested himself in the ten sefirot, and he used them to create the world. This is what it says in Kabbalah. Now, the Tanya mentions over here that our soul resembles the image. Man was created in God's image. What that means is that our soul actually, since it's a part of Hashem, also has ten faculties. So just as God has the ten sefirot, our neshama as well also has ten faculties. Okay, so what are these ten faculties? So he continues. They are subdivided into two general categories. These are three mothers and seven doubles. What are the mothers and doubles? So three parents and seven children in, or seven sets of twins, although there have to be some triplets there. We won't speak about that now. But um, the three mothers are, he continues to say, namely, Chachma, wisdom, Bida, understanding, and Da'as, knowledge. They're called the mothers. And the doubles are the emotional attributes known as the seven days of creation. Each day had another attribute, kindness, chesed, gvura, tiferet, and so on. Okay, so God has this ten sefirot. The ten sefirot have two divisions. There's the mothers and the children. Why are the mothers called mothers and the children called children? Because the mothers give birth to children. And this is the Chabad Hasidic approach. Children, in our um, um, in our context, is going to be speaking about feelings. And feelings need to come from, just as children need to come from parents, feelings need to come from intellect. 
through us applying the three steps of intellect, chachma, bida, das, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, we are able to give birth to feelings. Now, this is all the way it exists by God, and he continues, so too on page 67 in the middle, I'm just reading the bold, so too with the human soul and its ten faculties, they are divided into two general categories, seichel, intellect, and midas, emotional attributes, emotional attributes. Okay, so what are these? What is the intellect? What are the three steps of intellect? What is Chabad? What is Chofba bin Adas? I'm not talking about the Hasidic movement now. Now I'm talking in Kabbalistic terms. What does Chabad actually mean? And then what are the seven emotions? So he continues to explain, and this is actually quite fascinating. If you want to develop a feeling for something, this is the formula. And that's where I go back to. I said every soul is searching to develop some kind of godly experience. And this is the long, short way. If we're able to use this formula, applying our minds in the right way, then we're able to develop incredible feelings. And what is the formula? So I'll share it outside because we're starting to run out of time. Chachma, Bida, and Das. Chachma is a hard word to translate. We all know the word Chachma. Probably most of us do. A Chachma is a wise person. Here he translates Chachma as wisdom. In Kabbalah, it says Chachma actually is made up of two words. Koach, Ma, the ability to ask what? The first step in understanding something is humility. It's instead of saying that I know it all, it's opening up my mind to something that's higher, to something that's beyond me. That's really chachma. The translation wisdom is that, let me share some wisdom with you. In other words, the beginning of the, uh, the be beginning, the process of imparting an intellectual idea is to open one's mind to something new, to something that's higher, to something that's above me. That's Chachma. Chachma is the ability to be spiritually or intellectually open-minded. Open-minded means forget everything you know, make your mind a cup, an empty glass, and allow something that's higher to enter in. Then we have Bidda. Bidda step two. Bidda is translated as understanding. Now we take this wisdom, this pearl, this splash, and we begin to understand it. We begin to ask many questions. We begin to ask ourselves, what exactly does this mean? What does this wisdom mean? What does it translate itself into? We dissect it. The Tanya gives the analogy, actually, of conception. Chachme is the original seed, where it's still undeveloped, but there's something new that's just entered into the body. And Bina is the nine months of pregnancy, where uh, that seed now develops into a whole human being. So it's taking the concept and really understanding it, asking questions and, 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 and seeing exactly what it is. That's step two in the intellectual process, bina, understanding. Step three is da'at, da'at. Da'at is freely translated as knowledge. That is a hard word to, to a concept to explain. If you've already got the wisdom and you've already understood it, so what's left? Da'at, to know it. To know it, says the Tanya, is to connect with it. The Tanya quotes from the, the Torah. The Torah says that Adam knew Eve, or Adam Yada as Chava. And when the Torah says that Adam knew Eve, it actually means that they were together. Because knowledge, to know something, is to connect with it. It's a little bit less um, objective, because intellect is objective. Emotions, by de definition, are subjective. But within intellect, Da'as is already the beginning of the next stage, the children that will be born, 
which are feelings, which are subjective. So within intellect, first, you've got to be open-minded to a new idea. Then bidding, you've got to understand the idea. And thirdly, you've got to connect with idea, connect it to yourself. And that's already making it, it's an objective idea, but now you're bringing it into your own life. Natanya says that the way a person achieves das is where a person, just to quickly glance, it's right at the end of the chapter already, because we're at, so we've got about one minute left. Um, uh, page 75, top of the page. Binding one's mind with a very firm, strong bond and firmly fixing one's thought on the greatness of the blessed Ainsoff without diverting his mind from it. So complete application, complete focus where everything else stops. That's a different level of understanding. It's one thing to just you know, be browsing or Googling or looking up something and developing and understanding something. But to know something, you need to be completely present. It needs to be your whole life, your whole world, where everything else pauses for that moment. And when we're able to apply these three steps to God, he gives three examples. He says, whether it is in understanding the way God exists within, our, within the world, which is God on a lower level, on pages um, uh, 71, he says, middle of page 71, how he fills all the worlds. That's one example. A second example is he encompasses all the worlds. Meaning Hashem is in our lives, but he's also greater than that. He's higher than this world. And then even higher than that, the bottom of page 71, or how in his presence, all is considered as naught. He's so powerful that we're completely insignificant in his presence. If we were, these are three Hasidic concepts of godly concepts of God, of thinking about God. If we're able to take our Chabad, if we're able to be open-minded to actually think long and hard about God in a very um, systematic way, then we will develop the most unbelievable love and awe for him. And in chapter one, we spoke about water being a, a, an example of desire, which is negative, and fire being associated with anger. And somebody asked, you know, are these good attributes? But here we speak about it in a positive sense. We talk about where a person has this fiery love for Hashem, where he's, he's just impassioned. He's, he's the chap, there in chapter three. There's so much there. I'm just sharing a few in my own words. You can read through the chapter yourself. How the person has this fiery love where he just wants to cleave to Hashem. Or like water, he has this desire to cleave to Hashem. So these are the, this is the out-of-world experience. This is a moment where a person really is just feels that they're in a blissful space because they've actually tapped into their neshama. The neshama is not only something in potential, but through applying their mind, which is the long, short way, they've actually begin to feel this relationship with Hashem in a very real way. Easier said than done. It's a long, short way. But a time for this is davening. And here's an interesting thought, and I'll conclude with this. I didn't share, share one or two stories, not so related. But here's the, the interesting thought. We come to Shul from time to time, and we daven. And we don't know where to start, we don't know where to end sometimes, we don't know what we should say, what we shouldn't say, and we don't necessarily know what's going on. But there's a concept of thinking about Hashem before you start davening. Now, obviously, while you're davening, you're thinking about Hashem. But if before you start davening, you have a quick... This is really Hasidic meditation, which really would be a, a whole separate class because meditation is a whole topic in its own right. But if before you start davening, you close your eyes and you think, okay, 
Does Hashem exist in my life? Where does he exist in my life? How do I understand it? Not how do I understand why bad things happen to good people. That's a philosophical question, which is a tough one. Maybe we can try to understand. But more like how real is he? Like how present is he in my life? And if we're able to stop for literally 30 seconds before we start davening and we think about Hashem, then when we begin to say the words, we'll see that suddenly there's feeling injected into those words. The parents give birth to children where we feel somewhat in some way on some level, somewhat of a love and excitement towards Hashem where he's real and, and, and we love him. And he's some, somebody that we want to connect with. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Questions?